Thank you for standing by and welcome to the South 32 UKSA Investor and Analyst Q&A teleconference. All participants are in a listen-only mode. There will be a presentation followed by a question and answer session. If you wish to ask a question, you will need to press the star key followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. I would now like to hand the conference over to Mr. Graham Kerr, CEO. Please go ahead. Thank you, and good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us for our financial results conference call for the year ended June 30, 2021. Joining me on the call today is our Chief Financial Officer, Katie Tovich, and our Chief Operating Officers, Jason Economies and Mike Fraser. I'll give a brief summary before handing back to the operator for questions. Um, for people who are interested, there is a short video summary of our FY21 financial results available on our website. But I'd start by saying, look, this has been a challenging year for everyone as the impacts of COVID-19 continue to be felt globally. Our focus has been on keeping our people safe and well, maintaining safe and reliable operations and supporting our communities. Despite these challenges, I was really pleased to see our operations performing well. And that's really reflected by the three production records we set of Worsley Alumina, Brazil Alumina and Australian Manganese, and also where we exceeded initial market guidance of South African Manganese, Ceramatosa and Cannington. So the base business is running well. This strong operating performance combined with improved commodity prices translated into a 153% increase in our underlying earnings. Also over the last 12 months there's been substantial progress in reshaping our portfolio with divestment of South Africa Energy Coal and Temco and a portfolio of non-core precious metals royalties. These actions, plus the closure of metalloids, allow us to simplify our business, reduces the capital intensity, and improves the margins. In terms of our future developments, at hope that Hermosa work continues to progress the studies of both Taylor and Clark. At Ambler Metals, we commence the summer field season drilling program and continue the PFS for the Arctic deposit. In May, we announced our medium term target to half our scope one and scope two emissions by 2035 from our 2021 baseline, supporting our pathway to net zero by 2050. To make this happen, we'll invest in efficiency projects, shift to low carbon energy, apply low carbon design principles and adopt new technologies. Increasing our exposure to the base metals is also required for this low carbon future. Looking ahead of where we are, you know, you should expect to see strong volumes at our base metals operations. Moselle, Ceramatosa and Cannington have delivered or are in the process of delivering a series of improvement projects designed to increase production into favourable markets. We will continue to pursue costs and volume efficiencies to offset stronger producer currencies and cyclical inflation. We are well positioned to take advantage of improving commodity markets and continue to transition our business to the future which is backed by our strong operating performance, our high quality growth opportunities, and a disciplined approach to capital allocation. With that, I'll hand it back to the operator for questions. Thank you. Thank you. If you wish to ask a question, please press star one on your telephone and wait for your name to be announced. If you wish to cancel your request, please press star two. If you're on a speakerphone, please pick up the handset to ask your question. Your first question comes from Salve Brunette with XS 
BNP. Please go ahead. Good morning. Um, sure. Well, uh, three questions for me, please. The first one is on is on Kennington. Uh, you're hinting at strong volumes in in the coming years. I just wanted to get a a, a, a better sense of how sustainable um, that is. My second question is on Ilawara, and perhaps I know it's still early days, and you're looking at uh, options there, but. Uh, wanted to understand the alternatives, what the alternatives would be to your initial uh, dendrobium expansion plan and to what, what extent this would uh, raise more questions on the uh, future of Ilawara or if, uh, if there are ways around that. And my last question is perhaps to get, um, to get a better um, outlook for CapEx if we exclude Amosa for the moment, uh, for the for the next few years, if we go beyond the beyond just the next twelve months, if you could give us a little bit of a uh, framework to, uh, to 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 think about. Thank you. Yeah, look, yeah. absolutely. Um, and look, I would um, <coughs> apologies. I'm actually losing my voice slightly, so I wouldn't say I'm 100% well. Um, in the pack, you'd actually see that we did actually outline some of the work we've been doing at Cannington. Particularly if you go to slide 37, we gave a bit of an overview of where we've been in terms of all process, where we're going for 22 and 23, and also what does the payable production look like? And we certainly gave some pretty clear guidance on 22 and 23, and also tried to give you some mid-term averages from around 24 to 27. Now the big change that's occurring at the moment is the hoisting, which has been the traditional method of taking material up to the surface of the canyon from the underground, is nearing the end of its life. Now we have been planning for a period of time and flagged that we're looking at a study to transition to a trucking only operation from quarter four of FY22. This would involve decommissioning the underground infrastructure, which takes off some of the constraints and mound mining sequences and allows us to bring forward some of that high-grade material that we always talked about near the end of the mine life that we said was in the current pockets of the infrastructure. Uh, this is a low, if you like, um, capital investment. It's high returning. Operating costs stay about the same. You know, capital expenditure, including FY22, is about $15 million for a total investment of $28 million. Um, that's really what the big shift is in the next couple of years and then the medium-term target. The team themselves at Cannington continue to do work around remnant mining um, and looking at other opportunities you know, around some of that existing infrastructure. You Really what you're looking though is in the perfect world, if you can add a year or two of resource every year, that's where you actually want to be. <coughs> the one thing I would make about Cannington, you saw that with the results this year when you look at zinc equivalents, you know, because of the stopes you're now touching and the sequence of the stopes, you know, you do have quite a bit of variability in grade depending on which stoke you're actually into at the time. Uh, the second question around, you know, Illawarra, uh, that is a good question. I mean, we sort of talked through that a little bit of detail today as well to sort of give people a sense. Probably the best slide for that one is slide 44 in the pack. And if you sort of take a step back about where are we in Illawarra, we've spoken for a period of time now about how it happened. You know, we're ultimately moving to using the long walls in a different way, which is far more efficient from FY25 onwards, um, almost like a step-on, step-off basis. And that allows us to reduce development. It allows us to reduce the continuous miners and get you know those longer panels that sort of give us the economies of scale. 
where the challenge has been, you know, from January, February this year is around Dendrobium Next Domain and what that looked like. You know, the original intent, we were looking for the IPC, which is the Independent Planning Commission in New South Wales, to actually approve it in the third quarter of FY21. Um, much to our surprise and also a surprise to the government, they actually refused the process. Um, the IPC is an independent body that was established by the government where they don't really have control over stewardship when past corruption occurred in this space. I guess the challenge we have now is we've got a couple of options that are left open to us, and that's what slide 44 is really outlining. One is, you know, we have commenced a judicial review of the IPC's decision in the Land and Environment Court of New South Wales. You know, that is a process that is something we think we should do because we certainly disagree with some of their findings, and their findings are contrary to many of the technical experts. So we will go through with that process, but the reality is it probably kicks it into some kind of approval process again by the IPC. The second option is the State Legislative Council has passed a motion requesting that any future development of DMD be declared a state significant infrastructure, which gives the Minister a planning of the opportunity to actually take it through the toll gating process. <coughs> so down below you'll see there's three options we've got there. One is the original DMD mine plan. The second one is a DMD ADAPT, and that's the one we'd be looking to take back towards the Minister um, and use that state significant infrastructure. So when we say DMD ADAPT, it'll be, a, a, if you like, an optimised mine plan that addresses some of the IPC decisions. While we don't agree with them, we'll address some of them, and it also focuses on some of the highest quality coking coal. That's the plan, if you like, that we will take through to the Minister. It's currently in feasibility study. Expect to finish that by the end of this calendar year. Um, and the last option, obviously, is if we get nothing to go ahead on Dendrobium next domain, well, then you just do Appen. With the challenge being that Appen, Appen as we spoke about in the past, has a relatively high cost structure because of depth and the gas levels, but that's something the team has been working on. Um, so we'll have a lot more clarity around that towards the end of the calendar year. I think the government is very sympathetic because they understand the broader economic ecosystem in that part of the world where you know, about 20% of our product will go to actually blue scope to their furnace. Um, we're the largest customer of the port when it comes to the Port Kembla Coal Terminal. So you know, there's all those pieces that sort of come together, but by the end of the year we'll have greater clarity. The risk that exists here, and that's part of the reason we took the impairment, is you know, we still need to go through that approval process. And probably like most coal projects around the world now, there is more uncertainty than it was probably 24, 36 months ago. Um, maybe CapEx. Katie, do you want to address CapEx? Sure, thanks, Grant. Um, just in terms of uh, CapEx, maybe more broadly, uh, and then I'll just quickly touch on the Illawarra CapEx, but certainly more broadly, um, we had um, been talking about uh, a CapEx range of um, four, um, 420 to 520 million for sustaining CapEx in our business, and you will have seen we've come out with uh, number around 475. Uh, that's, that's a number we expect to uh, sustain uh, as we look into next year as well, um, at, you know, moving forward. What you're seeing in that base sustaining CapEx number is a fairly significant step up uh, with Illawarra. So Illawarra, as they transition to the single long wall structure, um, they're looking at uh, incremental ventilation and coal clearance activity. Um, so we've got on that slide 44 that Graham referenced you'll see that sort of between 22 and 25, we're expecting around about $190 million a year 
um, at Illawarra uh, in, in that safe and reliable capital bucket. Um, stepping across to our improvement life extension, <coughs> GCARB Capital, uh, we had talked at, um, at our last get together in terms of having roughly 50 million uh, a year um, of capital to compete um, in terms of improvement capital. Um, also, something in the region of 40 to 50 million dollars over a two-year window for decarb capex, uh, and then we've also got life extension capex that we've categorised in, in that group. Um, if you think about the improvement capital, I mean, a lot of our focus in that space has been very much around um, the, the base metals, um, and you will have seen uh, this year and into next year, um, certainly Ceramatozo with the QMP project uh, delivering higher-grade ore, uh, that comes through uh, into uh, FY22 for the first year. Um, OSMOC um, as well, you'll see a 10% you know, uplift uh, off the back of that project, um, and that creates optionality for us again going forward uh, in terms of uh, uh, extension, contract extension in Colombia. Uh, but those two projects, you know, they, they're delivering greater than 100% IRRs, um, you know, so, so low cost, you know, high value projects. And that's what we're looking to do in that improvement um, capex category uh, across the group. Um, we've got the AP3XLE project at Mozal that's um, also delivering already. Um, they've got another couple of years to roll out, but we'll see that 10,000 tonne uplift uh, over the five years. Hillside are going through a process of testing that technology as well. Um, they've already commenced that process, um, and they'll look to toll gate if that's successful um, into the second half of this year. Um, and that also fits in terms of decarb capital. So as we're thinking about decarbonisation capital, um, we're really looking at efficiency projects um, in the first instance. Um, so the, the AP3 XLE at Hillside, but also then um, as we look at um, Worsley, um, they're looking at options for mud washing. Um, again, these are efficiency projects. Um, they actually compete on an IRR basis um, with broader uh, options. Um, but they're also great in delivering um, our decarb commitment in the short term um, and, and getting some of those um, carbon uh, opportunities uh, in play. Um, further deep bottlenecking opportunities we're looking at at HMM, um, vessels underground, rapid loadout, um, and some of uh, the other optionality uh, in that space, uh, and then trucking at Cannington um, as well. Um, so. Not a small, not, not a significant uh, amount of capital sitting in that improvement bucket, but certainly lots of good opportunities competing. They're relatively low cost, high returning, um, and the decarb at this stage over the next two years, it's pretty low capital commitment. Um, the next phase of that is really starting to look at some of the infrastructure projects, so things like um, um, coal to gas at Worsley, um, again, relatively low cost, but it starts your transition from a carbon uh, reduction perspective. It's also a de-risking opportunity for us uh, in terms of coal reliability of supply at Worsley, so something that uh, we also consider in that context. Um, I think the, probably the last bucket then is um, our growth capex. So we have guided 45 million uh, for um, Hamosa uh, into next year, uh, or oh, sorry, this year. It's, that's our first half capex number. Um, and once we release the, the details of the PFS, we'll provide updated guidance in terms of what that looks like for the balance of the year. Thanks, Katie. And I think we'll one of the 
takeaways there is that competition we have for capital now that perhaps didn't exist three or four years ago to hope to create value for the group. Does that, that address all three questions you had? Uh, yeah, Grant, just to be, to be uh, fully clear on Ilawara, the, the uh, option of running APIN only, uh, you'd say, is, um, is entirely viable economically, even at, say, sort of long-term prices. I think the team can get towards it, but I don't think it's going to be an attractive long-term option. I still think our preference, because of the nature of the blending and the other benefits that go together, is actually D&D ideally adapted also happen, but the team needs to do the work to make sure that the economics stack up on that. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question comes from Peter O'Connor with Shore and Partners. Please go ahead. Hi, Graham, Katie. Uh, wish you well, Graham. Nicole, Graham, could you just take us through your thoughts on the market dynamic, because it just seems extraordinary, the relative price of uh, what you're selling. Metcol 4 from Illawarra and what Stemcoal's going out at and where you think that tracks from here. Secondly on coal, Eagle Downs, where is that at the moment? What happened? There was no mention of that in the CapEx slides. So I'm just wondering where that's at. And thirdly for Katie, just could you run through the alumina cost step up to 241 from where it was last year, just the buckets that's taken it up, uh, the increments that get you there and why? Yeah, look, all very good questions. Um, maybe if we start with the, the net coal market, I mean, obviously we've seen a strong rebound in the net coal price, particularly the hard coking coal price, above $200. Some of that's been driven by the tight PMV supply and strong demand outside of China. We could see some supply lead to a little bit of, if you like, downward pressure and that from the current spot in the six months, but, you know, that's something we'll continue to watch. Um, you know, we have seen, for example, some interesting dynamics in the market where, you know, tighter supply is being made diverted from Saraji coal into the thermal market. Um, we've also obviously seen some other shifts around what's happening globally. I mean, obviously the bans still exist in place with regards to Australian coal in China, um, but we haven't actually seen the domestic coal supply really recover from the safety inspections and other issues. If you look in China, it's probably 52% down year on year. Uh, what you have seen, obviously, is the CFRS China prices have increased about $339 a tonne, with an import of about $15 a tonne. From our perspective, Australia, you know, India has been a key driver with the May 21 annualised imports about, you know, 66% higher year to date, year on year, so that's about 23 million tonnes. And with cases of COVID-19 declining and sort of coming out of that season, there is more potential upside, if you like, in that space. I think the other area that we're seeing that has been strong is your share of Australian imports into basically Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam and Brazil. Um, what we haven't really seen is the European markets take up much of the Australian coal as they're pretty much stuck with their stable US coal supply agreements, which obviously... You know, they they understand the blends well and they understand, you know, how to make margins when prices are where they are. You know, obviously some of the risks in the second half is you potentially see Anglo restarting more and bar north. Um, you know, we would probably see our M plus three forecast, as I said, slightly coming down off the high potentially over the next six months. We would see steel demand 
you know, out of China drop quite a bit, but we'd also see some of the global steel not being strong enough to pick up the slack. So it's been good to see the price where it is, but probably expect a little bit of softening in that space. Look, with regards to Eagle Downs, Eagle Downs is always an interesting one for us because while there has been some you know, upside on the price when it comes to net coal, we pretty much you know, run most of our projects because of the length of the projects with a long-term view of net coal, and that hasn't really changed for us. It's around that $140 a tonne mark. Um, so the returns that we spoke about towards the back end of calendar year are probably still pretty similar. You know, it's a high 13.5, 13 13.6% IRR. And as a base metals project, we'd probably be interested. It's not a base metals project. The noise that goes to the net coal project um, probably doesn't make it overly attractive for us. I think now that the market's picked up a little bit with Aquila, we'll obviously have a look at anyone who might be interested in this. I think between ourselves and Aquila, we have a good working relationship and we'll explore the market, but it's also an option we've got, which is really low cost to hold if the market turns a certain way and our long-term view changes. Uh, maybe Illumina, you can answer that, and then I'll circle back and see if we've missed anything, Peter. Um, Katie, do you want to answer Illumina? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess in terms of uh, Illumina, what we have seen, and we did have a slide in there, um, slide 22, is that certainly from half one to half two last year, um, and then heading into guidance uh, in, for 22, we have seen a, a consistent step up in, in our costs at Worsley. Um, look, the large portion of that um, is off the back of uh, increases in caustic prices and what you will have seen is, so the caustic, uh, Northeast Asian price for caustic through FY21 has shifted up from $250 um, and right now they're trading, it's trading at $367 a tonne. Um, so certainly um, that step between half to FY21 and what you're seeing in FY22, half of that step up is associated with uh, caustic soda price increases uh, and price linked freight. Um, so that's coming through. Um, and if you take a look at, um, if you look at our Alumar cost base, so H2 FY21 for Alumar, uh, we had a 201, but if you back out, um, actually the, the historical tax credit that they received in half two, that actually brings them back to 225. And so I think what we're seeing is across um, the sector more broadly, is that inflationary impact coming through off the back of raw material input pricing um, and other inflationary pressures. So I'd say so Worsley and Alimar are probably on, on par in terms of their cost structure and you would expect to see that flow uh, for Alimar also into, into FY22. Um, look, the other key factor there that uh, probably uh, is, is more um, operational specific for us is really the move into a, a, a different mining area. So we are, have made a transition into a, in a, into a higher um, reactive silica area, and what we're seeing there is therefore an increase in our caustic soda usage um, at Worsley uh, as we work through that that area. Um, so the combination of, of the higher reactive silica and the uh, higher caustic prices are certainly having uh, a more significant impact for us. Um, and probably the other element really is we do have um, headwinds coming through in terms of um, this currency. Uh, through that window as well, um, strengthening um, through the window um, that has a couple of dollar impact um, year on year, year on year as well. 
so look, broad broad inflationary pressures through through the um, the market, I think. But certainly, we have a, a more specific issue at, at Worsley in relation to the mining area that we're working through at this stage. Probably the last comment I'd add, Peter, is um, we talked about net coal, thermal coal. Great to see the price is where it is. I think it helps Serene make SAIC even more sustainable and stronger, but doesn't change our view. I don't want to be in thermal coal in South Africa. Saw your questions, Peter? Thank you. Your next question comes from Miles Allsop with UBS. Please go ahead. Just following up on a couple of those questions, how long will you be mining through this uh, high reactive silica area at Worsley? Um, and also with Worsley as well, could you talk to you know, this fairly material lift in the closure provision? Um, you're saying that you've, you've kind of changed the discount rate. Why are you changing the discount rate now? That would be quite helpful. And, and how does the discount rate at Worsley compare to some of the other assets? It's, you know, you're kind of expecting more of a decrease in closure provisions post the, the sale of South African energy coal, and, and it hasn't really moved. Um, and then maybe uh, interesting just to, to get a, a few thoughts on your uh, scope one and two emissions. Do you mind us how much in South Africa and what the plan is for the big aluminium smelters? Thank you. Yeah, look, so maybe I'll take the the climate change or scope one and scope two questions first, um, and then Katie can respond on the reactive silica, but also on the actual closure. Um, just noting the closure changes, remember we actually did that half year, um, but we'll just go through what were those major drivers again, just so they're very clear. Look, if we sort of have a look about our emissions profile, because I think that's a starting point, and keep in mind that essentially four of our operations account for 90% of our scope one and scope two emissions. And they really are, you know, if you think about them, they're worthy, they're hillside, the Moselle, the Illawarra. In fact, you know, Moselle itself predominantly feeds off a hydro source, uh, which we think that's attractive if we can keep access to that hydro source in the long term and also manage some of the outages where occasionally we have to flip back onto reliance on ESCOM. That positions us well to actually supply into Europe and actually be a green source. Um, Hillside, obviously, the first thing we've spoken about for a long period of time was to actually secure, if you like, a long-term power contract, which we announced just recently, which is a 10-year power block. Now, if you look at the emissions, you're probably talking about 1.4 scope 1 and 10.7 scope 2. So that 10.7 is about 89% of our total scope 2 emissions. And that really is generated from, if you like, what's sort of coming from the ESCOM power grid that comes into um, Hillside. Mike can talk, if you like, in a little second about um, some of the work we're doing on greenfields. You know, we've got to work both of these angles, our own energy efficiency, but I think more importantly, how do we change policy induced investment? And maybe Mike can talk a little bit about the Green Sheets program, Mike. Why don't you cover that one? Yeah, thanks, Graham. Hi, good afternoon, uh, Miles. Um, look, I think, uh, as Graham has said, the first uh, pass for us was to secure that uh, life extension for Hillside with the 10-year power, power contract with Eskom. Um, and that gives us time to... 
secure a transition to to renewables. We have done uh, quite a bit of work on the economic modeling as well as the technical assumptions of what is required uh, to deliver continuous power to the smelter um, using renewables. And, and certainly we believe the economic and the technical challenges can be met over the next decade. Um, but I think the biggest transition that we have to work with is South Africa is obviously moving at a pace to deregulate uh, its energy grid, so removing reliance of ESCOM, but in the same way being able to sustain uh, energy-intensive industries like the aluminium smelters. But therein also lies an opportunity in our view because um, you know the grid will still require large off-takers and, and uh, that will actually meet the base demand of the grid. So um, it's quite an exciting time, but I think, as Graham has said, you know, the, the key issue for us is to, to work with ESKIM, with the regulators, to manage this transition in an orderly way. But we certainly believe over the next decade um, there will be an opportunity to significantly decarbonise, uh, particularly the scope to inputs into Hillside. And in addition, some of the technology opportunities that will emerge uh, to look at reducing scope one emissions as well will become available to, to aluminium production. So uh, a lot of work and a lot of exciting work will take place over the next decade in my view. And um, if we can achieve that, then, then there is a future for Hillside beyond the 10-year power block. So putting aside Hillside, our second biggest one would be around Worsley. And at Worsley, we have a number of projects we hear us talk about. In particular, we're going through the PFS sort of mud washing project at the moment. The mud washing project will really have some benefits around water, energy efficiency, but operating cost savings. So that's a real attractive project. The other ones we'll have a look at in the sequence of Worsley is obviously we use and have a large reliance on coal at the moment to create the gas we need. Now, we'll have a look at how we can, sorry, the steam we need. We'll have a look at how we convert that um, coal to gas. And then longer term, we're working at different various forums to try and see the opportunity to convert the gas to actually some kind of hydrogen. Um, and that's certainly the intent. And the 2035 timeline gives us a space to do that. And probably the last one worth mentioning, I mean, when you think about the next emitter for us, it is actually Illawarra, and in Illawarra we're doing two things. One is looking at the gas drainage as we actually get in there to do the work, and the second piece we're working hard on with CSIRO is some VAMET technology to basically take um, some of the methane that's left in the ventilation system out. So they're the, you know, they're the big projects that we've got under the go at the moment. Um, maybe, um, do you want me to just cover provisions, Greg? Yeah, do provisions, thanks, Katie. I think the other one was reactive silica. Yep, yep. Uh, so just on provisions, um, it's probably worth flagging. Um, so we, we run a, an annual discount rate review process um, in our business. Um, that process we uh, ran uh, before the half year. Um, and off the back of that process, what you may have seen uh, through our results at the half year was a fairly substantial step up uh, it was $875 million step up in our provisions from June 20 to December 31. Um, and it was a combination there of uh, changes to our discount rate um, that we had uh, that we used across the portfolio, but also um, actually a fairly large FX movement um, from $0.69 cents to $0.77. Cents. Uh, so the bulk of that change actually came through at the half year uh, off the back of that process. What we've seen from half year through to uh, the full year 
is a $113 million, uh, sorry, $113 million uh, increase um, come through um, if you back SAIC out. And that increase has predominantly been um, at Worsley um, and relates to some life of mine timing changes and, and some cost estimate updates that have come through. Uh, but certainly as, as we look at provisions going forward, the biggest volatility we would expect to see half on half or period on period relates to, to FX, particularly the ZAR and the Aussie dollar coming through. Um, it's not common that we would update our um, underlying discount rates, um, but certainly you know, as uh, long-term uh, rates move, risk-free rates move, um, you know, we do review that and make changes from time to time. And I think um, you know, our research would highlight that we're well uh, within the uh, range of our peer group um, as, as we've looked at some of the reporting um, that they've also shared in that space. Um, I, probably the other comment to make is um, in our annual report process, uh, last year, and we will do the same thing again this year, a 0.5% movement in our discount rate has about a $245 million um, impact uh, on our um, on our provisions, um, so that's the, the sort of sensitivity that you would expect to see with discount rate changes. I think the other thing to call out as well with the um, shift in um, in uh, with SAIC exiting the portfolio, um, one advantage that you see coming through in our costs is a reduction in our net finance costs or underlying finance costs in the region of $40 million, um, and that also it's probably worth flagging. Um, at the same time, uh, we'll also expect to see about a $90 million reduction in our depreci underlying depreciation costs come through um, as well uh, off the back of a number of changes. And then our tax, underlying effective tax rate, um, again with SAIC out of the portfolio, uh, we were getting some unusual effects there. What you'll see is that our uh, underlying effective tax rate will tend towards the average of the countries where we operate, which sort of is in the region of about 30%. Just to be clear, though, what discount rate are you currently using, just on that? So we don't provide our discount rate, but I think, um, you know, if you, if you think about long-term uh, risk-free rates and bond rates in the various regions where we operate, they're a fairly good indicator. Um, and you will have seen that you know, through time uh, those rates have been coming down. Um, if we start lifting, you'd see the closure provisions go down. Is that the way to think about it? Sorry? If your long-term rate starts lifting, then we'll see your closure provisions come down again. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's that 0.5% sensitivity. Um, you know, you, it, it's pretty sensitive to that, so sort of plus or minus in the region of $200, $230 million movement for 0.5% uh, movement in the underlying rates. Um, probably on your the reactive silica question, um, look, in, in terms of Worsley, uh, we move through a range of different mining areas. Um, we, are, we mine out of uh, a number of areas and we do blending, so West Maradong, Saddleback, Maradong, Lower Hotham. Um, and what we're seeing um, in terms of our forward view um, at the moment is, is that uptick uh, in uh, reactive silica, which is not different from what we've seen a few years back. Um, so certainly uh, that what the team are continuing to work on is how do you optimise that blend um, and better understand the ore um, going into your refinery to see what opportunities you've got to optimise the outcome there.
Thanks. Thank you. Your next question comes from Tony Robson with Global Mining Research. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, uh, good evening, and thank you for taking my question. Thanks for the uh, lots of detail in the presentation. Much appreciated from the analyst community. Um, two questions, please. Firstly, on Cannington, uh, I guess you might have looked at um, refurbishing the shaft or extending it um, internally, but mine life, I guess, counts against that. Um, so the question would be, is there exploration upside? At depth for Kennington, from memory, the open cut um, project was shelved some years ago, so is there any hope for extending my life at depth? Um, second question on Illawarra might be, hello, oh, there's a piece of string sort of question, but any idea of the timelines with the various two and frames with the government and the departments? Uh, could we still be talking about um, this uh, by the same time next year? Uh, thank you. Yeah, maybe I'll take the Illawarra one and Jason can respond to the Kennington one. Look, from my perspective, we would certainly have a preferred path forward towards the end of this calendar year, and then we'd be looking to engage the government very quickly to get into activation mode. Don't underestimate, there's a lot of work going on in the background about keeping them informed as well, and also working with BlueScope. Um, I think the challenge with any kind of long wall underground mine is discontinuity. So, you know, we want to make sure we get in a position where we don't have that. Um, and that's certainly the agenda we're driving to try and sort of get it really pushed towards the end of this year for the Minister to make the call and then go through that approval process. Um, Jason, you want to talk a little bit about Cannington and the shaft? Um, the shaft is coming to the end of its useful life and we are transitioning to trucking. Um, the, what the shaft um, decommissioning enables us to do is actually access some high-grade um, stopes that wouldn't have been uh, accessible previously. So as far as um, the, that transition goes, it's not that the shaft is not able to be um, not able to be kept until the end of life. Uh, sorry, it's that it can't be kept until the end of life. So I hope that answers your question. Okay. Uh, yeah, in part, yes, thank you. Um, and exploration, are you exploring further at depth or around the mine, or given that it's such a fairly old mine, it's all been drilled out over the decades? Yeah, so we do we do have an exploration program that is in and around uh, the operation, and we're continually looking for further sort of Broken Hill style deposits. We are also doing uh, work to look at further remnant mining, as well as to extend the uh, ore body as best we can. So there isn't any, there aren't any results to share on that, but we're definitely investing in that exploration in and around the the current deposit and a little bit broader. Okay, thank you. It's probably worth just adding quickly there also that the total capex um, for that trucking transition is relatively low. Um, so it's, it's around about a $28 million um, project, so a high returning project. Okay, thank you very much. I mean, it's also easy to forget that, you know, when Canton was built, what are we in 22nd, 23rd year now? You probably were talking about a mine life at that stage, about 14 this year. So the shaft as well and truly you know, gone longer than people expected, and I think that's a testimony to how the team have been watching and monitoring it. But the economics of trucking just make much better sense. And to your point, for a life of mine, you know, thinking a shaft like that, lighting it, maintaining it, just doesn't make any sense anymore. Yep. Okay. Uh, all clear. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question comes from Sergey Donskoy 
for Society General. Please go ahead. Oh, yes, hi. Uh, thank you very much for taking my questions. I have two. Um, one is uh, actually a follow-up on uh, Hillside and uh, its transition to low-carbon power. I know it's uh, early days, uh, but you have made some interesting comments, and I can't help asking, uh, do you have any initial thoughts on what sort of impact this transition uh, to low-carbon electricity uh, can have on the cost structure? Basically, should we be prepared to see um, you know, power costs uh, you know, double or treble over the next decade if we uh, uh, move away from uh, um, uh, coal-fired uh, electricity uh, based on wh whatever technologies or solutions you are considering now? Uh, or is it something that we uh, that can be uh, you know um, uh, less extreme? And uh, second question um, on um, uh, Australia manganese. I know it's not a major issue for you now, uh, but um, uh, are there any news uh, on exploration progress uh, in the area of southern leases that could ex uh, help uh, extend uh, mine life beyond this decade? Yeah, thanks, Richard. Maybe just the, the manganese one first. We're still doing the work on the southern leases. We'd expect that the next tranche of that program to be finished by the end of this calendar year. I've always sort of made the position that it is a different mining area because you're sort of going to the southern part. It does have <clears throat> a lot more waterways and causeways, which naturally means it's more, if you like, a value to the traditional owners. So we've got to work through what that looks like. The range I've always said <clears throat> is, you know, are we going to get two, five years? And the answer's been we don't really know till we finish the drilling program. But in saying that, probably getting more confidence that we'll at least get a couple of years out of that. But the rest of it will probably have a better sense of potential by the end of the calendar year. Uh, maybe the hillside question, you know, Mike can cover that in a bit of detail. But I would start by saying that, look, the one thing I think Mike and the team have done very well over the journey is, you know, Hillside is very much integrated to the whole ecosystem around that part of South Africa in terms of we sell much of it. A lot of our product, roughly 30% domestically, goes to Shield and is the India that creates a lot of jobs downstream. So it's very much tied to policy, the ANC and the South African government. Um, you know, we're a very large power user. You know, we obviously are looking for security of a long-term power agreement that has to be competitive. We think that provides a good basis, whether it's ESCOM or some other kind of party producer, to think about what they do. But maybe, Mike, you could sort of have a bit of discussion about how the team's approaching. Yeah, no, excellent question. And, and look, I think, you know, the first thing I'd just say from a, from a health warning, we've only migrated this work into pre-feasibility recently. So, you know, there is a lot more work that we, we have to do. But I think what really um, believe, gives us and the team a belief that this can be achievable at an, at an economic level that is not significantly more than we will be paying for existing Eskom grid-type power in, in 10 years is when you look at the, the cost of coal that's actually coming through um, into Eskom and their primary energy costs, that continues to push real inflation in, in power costs through that grid, and it's probably something that you would expect to see in, in many grids globally, um, that coal just becomes increasingly more expensive. And then when you offset that against the learning rates that are starting to be demonstrated into you know, solar, wind, and even battery storage as a, as a combined renewable solution, 
we believe that over a decade there will be very close uh, intercept points when you should see a very competitive position for renewables. And, and I guess that's what's going to be really interesting about the aluminium sector because, you know, aluminium ultimately the resource is power. And so being able to secure a competitive positioning in power um, over a decade will be what determines, uh, you know, long-term sustainability of these smelters. But at this stage, we do believe that it will not be orders of magnitude greater than what we would anticipate seeing uh, in a decade from now if we just renewed our existing power block. Probably one thing I'd Thank you very much. To just quickly add to that, sorry. Um, certainly one thing we're not intending to do is put our balance sheet at, at risk in terms of um, becoming a, a, an energy producer. Um, so this works about um, you know, working with stakeholders um, to induce um, green energy, um, but certainly it's not our intent to, to apply our balance sheet towards that activity um, as we go forward. Thank you very much. It's very, very helpful. Thank you. That does conclude our Q&A session for now. I'll now hand back to Mr. Kerr for closing remarks. Well, first and foremost, thanks everyone for your time because I know everyone's very busy at the moment. But just a couple of high-level key messages I wanted to leave you with is, you know, when you look at our business today, the base operations are performing strongly and they're well positioned to take advantage of strong commodity markets. We have been very busy reshaping our portfolio for a low carbon future, exiting lower returning operations and investing further in base metals, which I think positions us very well for the future. At the same time, you know, our approach to capital management remains unchanged, and that capital management framework is working as we intended it to. It's rewarding our shareholders as our financial performance improves. Um, but more importantly, thanks for your time today and support, and have a good day. That does conclude our conference for today. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.